I said growth can be engineered through disciplined, scientific, technical, and management science, right? Approach. So management is to us is a science. Growth equity centric strategies performed much better in area in times of volatility uh, as and providing similar upside returns as as traditional earlier stage venture but providing more of the loss ratios and uh, you know that are more akin to traditional large ticket private equity more attention to drive home and that's not a, a hope or a wish that is actually what happened in one of the most major recessions that we went through in the technological era which was 2008. So leveraging that data and having that data set behind us is also, uh, you know, compelling factor in us having conviction in how we're prosecuting our strategy right now. Thanks for tuning in to the Alt-X podcast presented by Investive Capital. I'm your host, Saad, and in this podcast, we talk about unique and promising fund managers, successful investors, and industry experts. Today, I'm joined by Afzal Tarar and Umer Khalid from Arcus Capital Partners to discuss growth engineering and the nuances of growth stage venture capital. So without further ado, let's dive straight in. Thank you for making the time to actually do this. How are things in New York? Did, did they get better? I think our curve is um, almost on the uh, uh, bottom of the other side. Um, and very significant improvement in the last three, four weeks. Uh, but as far as opening up, I think a part of the uh, state uh, is already opened, manufacturing and construction. Um, I think professional services where we belong, uh, financial services, uh, they will open uh, in early June. Right. So I think it in four parts. Yeah, maybe we just start with how you came across um, this industry. What brought you to specifically working with startups and, and companies who are in their growth phase and, and, and what really drives you in this business? Uh, I think uh, it would be uh, presumptuous of me to say that I was born with this or I suddenly had epiphany one day that I'm going to do this. So whatever uh, we are doing, and, and I think what we're doing is exciting stuff, it is a really a culmination of uh, 50 plus years of you know, living on this earth. So uh, seeing, living through, uh, experiencing a lot of different things uh, during my personal and professional career that culminated into this, right? So to, to answer a bit more uh, substantively what you're saying, so when I was thinking of leaving management consulting after 25 years, you know, I said, what are the things I could do to uh, maximize the lever of my knowledge and experience? So one of my clients actually happens to be CTO, of one of the world's largest firms. And actually this firm is the seventh largest firm in the world now, Ping An Group. The CTO of that group said to me, and I never thought about it till he said it, 
said, Al, why don't you do cross-border investments? Right? And so he put this, was serving him as his, uh, you know, consultant, advisor. Um, and so that stayed with me. So when I uh, decided to launch something, it, it, it became a, a very natural kind of uh, seed to nurture, right? That this is how Arcus Capital Partners was born uh, almost five years ago. Okay. How about yourself, Amir? How did you come across the industry and how did you find Al or how did Al find you? Absolutely. Um, so it was a unique journey for me. I spent the bulk of my initial career on the public equity side of the business. And uh, as kind of the career progressed and I had multiple seats uh, looking at various sectors, uh, I had a decision to make whether I was going to be a lifelong kind of an equity uh, person or I was going to look at some broader career options. And just given where the markets were and where the cycles were in different asset classes, uh, you know, at the end of uh, 2014, when I was leaving Goldman, I decided to make the switch over to the private side of the business, which is really on the private investing side, because I really thought that's really where all... Uh, of the interesting stuff was happening in the space, so to speak, the flow of capital, as well as uh, just my general interest. And what really endeared me to uh, the equities markets really was that fundamental skill set of being able to pick stocks, uh, which is really part fundamental, you know, technical skills. And then part is, you know, just being able to read people and be able to put it all together. There's multiple paths you can take on that journey to be a really good investor. And that's really what motivated me ultimately. And um, what I saw happening a little bit was that the equities world or, you know, the platforms where you could be and, and do well for yourself were not necessarily aligned with that kind of pure investor mentality anymore. You were trading for quarters and you were doing different things and it was a different world. Uh, so for me, when I looked around, where's the best place you can get that pure kind of stock picking type of mentality, investor mindset, then you can apply it well. It's private venture investing or you know mid to late stage venture where there's a little bit more meat on the bones and you can really kind of identify the management teams and work with them so that skill set really is what i saw to deploy and that's really what got me uh, to the private side of the business and then uh, through a couple of seats on the private side i was very fortunate to come in contact with al through uh, an operating partner at the firm when i was doing some mentorship at columbia university tech ventures and that's how the, the relationship got built so that definitely you know, makes sense. I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, in terms of the, the major problem or the major you know, characteristic in this industry that you are both trying to solve at Arcus Capital, what would you say that is? What's the biggest problem that you're trying to solve? I think if you, um, you can answer that from many different perspectives. I would answer that from the perspective of uh, the uh, gap between the capital seekers and capital providers. And, and I think the best vantage point I use, I use is of portfolio companies. So many of the portfolio company CEOs, they are suffering uh, in that gap. Right. So, and, and particularly growth stage companies. They are more seasoned executives, more experienced executives, but they tend to not want to work with traditional VCs or traditional VCs don't want to work with them. So they are either too late to traditional VC or they have had a bad experience working with traditional 
companies. So those portfolio companies, CEOs call them vulture capital, right? That's created a very unique uh, opportunity for us. Second is they need more than capital. They need advice and help with their growth strategy, you know, and people they have talked to before they met us, they never talked to them about these things. So when we met with them, when we spoke with them, it suddenly kind of lights got turned on for them and for us. But there are people like us who are doing capital plus growth, market access, a value add, active investment kind of approach. So I think that's a, 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 a niche that we are trying to fill. And we believe this niche is quite small. Uh, quite a few people claim that they do that, but in actuality, uh, fewer and fewer people do that. We're not saying we're the only one, uh, right, right. Know, but there are very few groups that do uh, exactly or nearly exactly what we do. Yeah, I mean, I can see that most of the, the VC firms that I've ever come across, they always identify as we, we invest in early stage or we invest in mid-stage or late stage. It's, you know, it, it kind of leads me to my, my point, which is, or my next question, which is, you know, how, how would you describe the growth stage? What are the characteristics that you're looking for in a company when you, when you say growth stage? So uh, in a very summary fashion, post-revenue. Post-revenue, okay. Technology has been proven and post-revenue kind of signifies that. So they have uh, commercial customers to buy their products and service, right? Right. Uh, and they're going through a, a kind of inflection point in their journey that like us. If they were looking for a quick, you know, uh, capital, right? We right. may not be, right? Or if they're just looking for capital, we may not be it, right? But if they're looking for capital plus substantive growth advisory help, and perhaps access to uh, Asia and U.S. markets that we have expertise in, uh, that's where we come in. You mentioned that you have expertise in Asia and U.S. markets. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? What do you mean? What are the countries that you're, that you're uh, focused in and, and have expertise in? So the core part of the firm's DNA uh, is uh, represented by our partners and uh, you know, team. Uh, most of us have had deep personal and professional connectivity to US and China, particularly China, but other parts of Asia as well. Okay. So as you and I have spoken in the past, I spent 14 years on the ground in China seven years as a younger uh, you know, student uh, 38 years ago, and then seven years recently between all working in Shanghai. So having spent 14 years over the last 38 years and then traveling back and forth has given me very unique uh, perspective and advantage, you know, uh, while being an outsider of you know, knowing about China, right? And so, unique, that is very unique. Yeah, so half of our partners and colleagues are uh, based in U.S. and maybe a small, slightly less than half, half are based in uh, China and Hong Kong. So that gives us a very unique perspective. How do you feel that gives you an advantage um, 
in this field being able to have exposure in both of the markets? All of the portfolio companies that we are working with, for them, US is number one or number two market, yeah. or China is number one or number two market. So sure. this becomes a immediate uh, icebreaker uh, in, con uh, in, in, in our conversation with the CEOs of these portfolio companies, right? Okay. So what we're doing is we're taking these portfolio companies and introducing them to B2B clients that they would not even have imagined have access to. Not because they are not worthy of their attention, because they don't have the bridge. So connecting some of our portfolio companies to a 10 cent uh, affiliate, connecting them to the second or third largest financial institution in the world, right? Uh, or the largest in asset management firm in uh, China, or one of the largest medical device uh, company in China. Those kind of conversations are the value at the, that we provide. Right. We so are actually with, yeah, go on. Well, I was, was going to say, in addition to the capital, that's what you meant when you said that the strategic partnership that you yes. have as well. Right. Yes. We are advising one portfolio company as we speak, a regulatory um, uh, entity in China okay. uh, on a you know, risk management solution, right? Yeah. So this portfolio company, and you're sitting in Canada, uh, one of their biggest clients is Bank of Canada. Okay. As an example. So this, this is, you know, the, uh, the, the, the state uh, bank, uh, you know, in Canada. So that's, those are the kind of companies we are working with and those are the kind of connections we're trying to make for them. Fair enough. Um, if I were to circle back to the strategy itself, how do you feel that your positioning and, and, and your leverage in this space allows you to be an advantage to your portfolio companies at the post-COVID area? Well, I think uh, uh, perhaps I will talk about uh, pre-COVID and then post-COVID. So I think pre-COVID or post-COVID, one baseline, understand the technologies that we are investing in quite right. particularly AI, artificial intelligence application in B2B space. So I studied AI in college and graduate school. Several of my partners have a deep expertise in this area. Um, more than uh, most of my partners have PhDs. You know, I'm perhaps the, uh, one of the few that, that, that doesn't. And so we understand the technology that we are investing in, and that alone was a very solid foundation to work with. Right. Then we added the China, US, US-China dimension to it. Right. So as US is still reopening its economy, China is a few months or several months ahead of us. For sure. For sure. That gives us a unique advantage. We are actually funding a three of the as we speak. We just signed a term sheet for $10 million for one of the three companies okay. right? with one investment group. Uh, last week. We are having a kickoff meeting with them tonight, right? So we are expecting to get these three feeder SPVs funded out of China over time frame. So those, those are, on a capital side, the advantages in post-COVID world, right? So we are basically diversifying our capital sources, for our portfolio companies not just relying on U.S. investors, also rely on 
non-US investors. Right? Um, yeah, yeah, that certainly makes sense. So how does this strategy then and the other value add uh, intangibles that you bring uh, affect the risk profile of these investments? Right. So what happened is that this basically uh, diversifies the uh, diversifies the uh, risk of the companies. Right. Uh, uh, in some cases, we're also helping these portfolio companies find partners that are distributing their products and services in a brand new market without investing significant amount of capital. So it's actually requiring no capital investment while getting access to a new market like China. And those are the conversations that uh, we bring to the table. Once they're implemented, they will add trajectory and acceleration of the growth of each one of these companies. But it takes tremendous amount of time and effort. Uh, whatever I'm saying to you is not easy. It's actually very, very hard. And very few people are willing to actually do it. So when we do these things, Right, and we do this day in day out. For uh, it, it matters. So these CEOs appreciate it very much. We exchange emails with the CEOs every day. I exchange emails with I think two CEOs this morning already. Right, right. One CEO is texting me in the background as we as I'm talking to you. Right. That's the level of engagement that we have with these guys. You mentioned the traditional VC uh, ecosystem. So to kind of build on that point, you, you mentioned that this is not the traditional VC ecosystem, and this is not something a lot of you know managers in your space do. Why do you think that is? Is, it, is there a particular reason, or, or is it just simply that they don't have the infrastructure set up? I think it's hard. It's hard. So we have the, I think, of multidisciplinary knowledge, skills, and experience yeah. uh, across the team. Many of us are former operators or management consultant or performance improvement specialist. Right. So we come from that space. We don't come from spreadsheet, um, uh, managing by spreadsheets. Right. We are managing by spreadsheets. You know, uh, although some of our people do come from that background, uh, Omer is one of them, right? Is a, is a, is our specialist in doing financial model. So we have that expertise. But a lot of our partner expertise is really looking at business and saying, what are the kind of things we can do to help them improve? How can we bridge the gap? What kind right. of things we can do to assist them, help them, advise them? That, that's how we, we are wired. So we are very deeply in that way. Okay. Well, Amir, um, speaking of, of the financials, um, uh, let's talk about the fund that you guys are raising because obviously that's the, the main vehicle through which you're able to to allocate or aggregate the capital. How much are you raising and, and what will be the main purpose of, of that fund itself? Sure. So I'll also defer to Al for some additional color here, but uh, on the base of it, uh, we're looking to raise our first institutional fund. Uh, we're, we're going to be targeting $100 million uh, as our cover raise and uh, with $150 million uh, hard cap. And all the parallel vehicles that we're investing in in the interim as well, kind of pursuing 
strategy uh, culminating with institutional, uh, you know, close, uh, you know, here for our fund, uh, they're all going to be operating under uh, the ILPA guidelines uh, and, and, and work together in the same format. So I'll, I'll defer to you for additional color here as well uh, on, the, on the use and the check sizes and the amount of companies we're looking to do. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted to ask next, actually, was, you know, what are the specifics around the fund itself? So I actually just wrote uh, an email to one of the uh, largest uh, allocators. Uh, I uh, came back to us after uh, a month um, uh, old email, and I just gave him this update actually uh, while I was walking over for this uh, video call. Um, so we basically told them we have uh, five. Okay, well, you just you cut off there for a second. Do you mind repeating that? Yes. So um, my update to this allocator was that uh, we have a five to $10 million of soft circle commitments, right. mostly from high net worth investors, some French mm -hmm. uh, investment from our own uh, you know, principles. Right. We have a $30 million of these um, uh, feeder SPVs that we just spoke about uh, right. out of China. Okay. We expect to get uh, uh, funding in all three of them by uh, the end of September, hopefully much sooner. And as I mentioned, we just signed a $10 million term sheet with one group last week right. that we are hoping uh, to close first. Then we have retained an outside um, uh, firm that has made 60 to 70 warm introductions for us to fund large European family offices, right. institutional investors, and several of those um, uh, institutions are doing initial DD on us as we speak, right? Okay. Mayor speaks with them, you know, several of them every day, every week. Uh, that's how we are engaging with them. So for a small firm like us, Saad, we have connectivity into you name a country and we have an LP we are talking with. Switzerland, Germany, France, um, every country in uh, Scandinavia. Uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, right? And our core China you know, on top of that. So, but we are, we just started this effort, you know, in all practical sense early. So till we get 20, $30 million in the bank or committed capital, right? We are not gonna be able to rest. But this is where we need help, you know, from a firm like yourself, from a platform like yourself. Typical investors will put, uh, you know, family office, put a million dollars. Yeah. They put half a million dollars. We'll take that money. But I think uh, we are going to be uh, additionally focused on five, $10 million allocations from pension funds, foundations that invest in first time managers. Yeah. And uh, to add on to that side, to your question as well, uh, about five to eight million dollar check size. Uh, and Al, I think uh, our latest thinking is around uh, 10 to 12 companies uh, for the bank. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's fairly standard, especially if you're looking for institutional capital. In my experience, institutional capital, when it comes from pensions and endowments, foundations, insurance companies, they generally like to go higher. But then again, there's that combination here that you are technically raising a first-time fund um, in this strategy. Obviously, they'll want to date you before they want to marry you, right? So uh, that certainly makes sense. And it's good that you have your expectations aligned uh, you know, for that level. Um, how about the projected returns? Um, 
the term of the fund itself? Can you give us some specifics on that? So uh, this is, would be a subject of some discussion with uh, people, uh, perhaps mm -hmm. in, including yourself. So we decided that we are gonna, we're looking for five plus one plus one term for the fund. Okay. Uh, it's not traditional 10 year term. And the reason we're doing it is because we do not want to invest in companies where we don't see a visibility of an exit within five right. years. Right. Uh, no, having said that, some companies will get uh, delayed in their exit, right? So we have built this buffer five to seven. In many companies that we actually have uh, invested in or we are investing in, we see exit much sooner. Some right. of the companies already have term sheets to buy them, right? Okay. Right. So th that's the term five plus one plus one. Uh, and we expect to do you know, on paper, we say five X, right? Okay. That's our uh, target um, return. Um, and and in, in a practical sense, we expect uh, much higher returns uh, again, because we are investing in largely de-risked technology companies. The, we are not taking any or material any material technology risk. We are taking commercialization risk, and that's where we have expertise. We think through our um, growth advisory, you know, and cap and commercialization expertise, we can uh, significantly reduce that risk. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think it's important that you that you identify the fact that yes, you are investing in technology stable companies but then it's the commercialization that is the risky part but that's where your expertise lies. i think it's very well put in that way um in terms of your current user base uh, your current investor base you mentioned that you're looking at institutions for this fund primarily however what would your current base look like now is it mostly high net worth individuals or is it a mix of family offices, or do you have some institutions that have worked with you in previous size? So, Saad, uh, uh, let me correct uh, something I might have said. Uh, our primary focus is not institutions. Oh, for this okay. Primary focus is family offices. I see. Okay. Funder funds, seeder funds, right? We are talking a lot of institutions, as you said very well earlier, to date them. Yeah. through fund one and perhaps even fund two, and then we'll get them in. Some institutions might invest in us uh, in fund one because they have emerging men. Uh, so we are not uh, uh, you know, fooling ourselves that we are gonna be able to convert. I think we're trying to convince many more high net worth investors first. Let's see. Family offices, next, fund funds, and then institutions. But we are talking to many institutions already. We engaged this firm last year, and as I said, we have about 70 warm introductions, and uh, we are hearing back from some of them already. Um, so we have a rhythm now. Okay, yeah, okay, well, thank you for clarifying that. I, I definitely did think that you were more focused on the institutional side. What about for the investors themselves? What would you say is the, the main piece of value add for them if they decide to work with you? So I can perhaps use an um, example of an investor. Uh, so we got several new investors to 
in one of our SPVs late last year. The principal reason to invest was the, the uniqueness of the opportunity that we have. This investor is a high net worth investor. He's a GP of a multi-billion dollar you know, PE firm himself. Yeah. He said to us, I usually do not invest in any team or people without spending six months or so and meeting with us, but he wrote us a check, uh, I think in his second month, right, Omer? Okay, right? yes. Yeah, okay. and the reason was the technology company that we uh, presented to him. Now he is looking to write a significantly bigger check for our next portfolio company. Which is always a good sign. For the same reason, because the opportunities that we present to him or presented to him are very unique. The same gentleman has invested in many early stage companies. He said he has 50 binders in his uh, home office for each company, right? Right. Uh, and some of those portfolio companies we know, right? So they will be something that you expect to get something back, maybe 10 years, 15 years, right? right? If you get anything back. And I'm not, not the kind of investment we're making. We're making investment that will be five or 10 binders, right? Right. Yeah. And each one of them has a very high likelihood of being commercially successful. I think losing your principal capital calculation in our assessment is close to zero. Okay. The, I mean, that's the thesis, that's the, the process we go through. So can we lose our principal capital? Yeah. Which is always a risk in, in the VC space. So you're saying that for you, in your process, your main approach is to make sure that the companies that you invest in are, are not the ones that are likely to lose your principal capital. It's just a matter of how much can you help them grow. Yeah, exactly. And then we diversify across the portfolio of 10, 15 companies. And I think that further reduces the risk. Right? Half of those companies may do you know, great and some may do baseline and some may be. So if I were to summarize that, it seems that you're saying that the value to an investor investing with you is that, you know, you're to able to take a more sophisticated and a more disciplined approach. Um, and especially in plan of an exit and plan of how they can make money as opposed to um, a lack of a vision when it comes to normally anybody who invests for their own self. Yeah. One, the growth stage. They right. have commercial revenue. Technology has been fully developed and, you know, and being sold. Right. We work with them to improve on their commercialization risk. And, okay. and in many cases, very significantly. Four, we add a very, very large new market that they have not contemplated entering, right? Interesting. So okay. by doing these things, I, we are reducing investment risk side. Okay. Well, so the flip side of that question then is under, you know, what conditions would you then say no to working with an investor? We actually say no to perhaps 90, 95 companies out of 100. As they don't fit this very high bar that we have. You have to have commercial revenue. Technology has to be fully developed, right? right? 
and you have very solid management team, you have very deep patent portfolio to protect the technology. Okay. And these are very high, high bars and most companies don't need these bars. Even with them, it's very, it takes a lot of time for them and for us to, as you said, borrowing your term, getting term right. sheet. So that's why I'm having looked at, you know, maybe close to 500 companies over the last, we have added on to five or six companies that we're working with right now. Okay. Each one of them is a culmination of a very long process, a very wide funnel. And yeah. out of this funnel, but we would like to have, we actually have 10, 15 other right? That when we have a committed capital, we can invest in them. And they meet this criteria. They must meet the criteria, right? right? They came through this funnel, but now they're on the bottom of the funnel, right? And so we have uh, a dozen of those companies, but we are focused on five right now. We would like to focus on 10, 15 more, you know, after we have committed capital. Okay. Um, no, thank you for answering that question. Um, Cause that would have been, you know, my next question. Uh, the question I was just asking you was, when it comes to an investor, right? Um, how do you qualify or disqualify which investors you want to work with and investors you don't? Uh, we have not been that finicky about uh, in, initial investors. And I think uh, it's a mutual uh, process of uh, uh, elimination, right? So we work with investors who are willing and uh, happy to work with us. Right? We work with investors that we are willing and happy to work with us. Some investors are very, very hard-nosed. So instead, we like them. We like hard-nosed investors. We said they're asking the right question. They ask and most definitely can satisfy other less hard-nosed investors. So this investor example I gave you is very, very hard-nosed because right. he's a GP of a multi-billion dollar fund himself. Okay. That makes sense. So, so he's actually our ideal investor because he's setting the stage for other investors to follow. He was actually our first investor in our other company. That makes so, sense. Yeah, last year. Okay, and then if we were to pivot to the conversation, so you mentioned what your dream investor would look like. So dream investor is a um, sophisticated, experienced, you know, this is not his or her first investment, right? Uh, and they the company uh, and for the right team, uh, after their due diligence, they're willing to, you know, move forward. So once this investor made his decision, this is the right company, he asked all possible questions you could ask. We introduced him to the CEO, CFO, CTO, of the portfolio company. And then he said, I'm good to go. When, where do I send a check? Okay. Um, if we were to get specific about some of the, the companies that you work with, um, one of them obviously jumped out to me because of the nature of what I do, but tell me about Cerebri and, and what made them special? What do they do? Um, and, and what's their advantage in their space? So Cerebri AI is a MarTech marketing, right? Yeah. So they use AI and many different facets of AI, right? To model consumer behavior, consumer behavior for purchasing 
you know, or upselling and cross-selling of large ticket items, right? And they have done other things as well. And the reason they, they appealed to us, the reason they appealed to us was they have a um, great client list and they had great investor list. So this is another way we risk our investment. We're not the first one. Right. And we're not the second one. We're perhaps the, the next batch of investors, right? In that company. So the things that appealed to us was, first of all, the technology is very solid. Right. Management team is solid. The CTO has 250 patents under his name. 250, okay. Yes, yes. A former Motorola executive, okay. a French French gentleman, came to U.S. to go to uh, graduate school at MIT, PhD from MIT. That's the background. The CFO is MIT Sloan. The CEO is Canadian, um, a Canadian American. You know, and this is his fourth great exits in the past. This is the the team background, technology background. Then they have, since you're sitting in Canada. Bank of Canada as their one of their first clients, right. Scotia Bank, Sun Life, Ford of UK, right? Those types of paying clients, right? And I don't want to take the risk of naming a new client, one of the largest three telcos in the US. Okay. We're starting with them in June. Okay, that's pretty impressive. With that pedigree, and their investors include Microsoft's M2L Venture Fund. Wow, okay. University of Texas uh, system. So you're really following an institutional uh, trail here where you're not just going into companies that have no um, backing, but you're actually you know, aligning yourself with, with companies that have proven some sort of potential by the association of other companies. Yeah, so some of those invest investors, uh, some in these companies could also be the future exit potential. Right. So right. that's what uh, excited us about Cerebriad. So we, we immediately thought, because I'm a, uh, in my background, so I've done 25 years of work in advising financial institutions. So how could we help Cerebriad connect with other financial institutions? In then we are introducing them to financial regulator in uh, you know China. Understood. Introducing them to uh, uh, a WeBank which is the world's largest digital bank owned by uh, Tencent. You know, these are examples or not, but nonetheless, these are the kind of conversation we're having, right? So that's a bit on Cerebria. How about we switch gears for a little bit? How about um, the uh, integrated endoscopy? That you're, that you're... So integrated, uh, kind of uh, beginnings, we have some expertise, right, as, an as engineers and scientists because it's a device. So we had that expertise. So we have a, a medical doctor partner based in Hong Kong, Jason Mann, right, is a former. So he provided the medical, you know, uh, healthcare uh, perspective. But the rest of the team provided technology, business, commercialization background. Understood. The thing that excited us about integrated endoscopy is they are relatively mature as a medical device company. So they have gone through many turns and twists already before they came to us. So they're 
these turns and twists. They brought in a very seasoned management team from uh, Abbott Labs, I think. Um, right, Omer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and, Abbott and Edwards. Yes. And so this management team provided the kind of um, safety to take the company to the next level. There's no investment anymore. They're just basically factoring of these devices and shipping them. Most of the business is distribution. That's about it. It has all regulatory approval everywhere in the world except China. Okay. Mark, they have FDA approval okay. and they have a back order of their product. Yeah. I think 15, 16 million dollars of back orders you know, on their books. But they don't have the capital to manufacture these products. And what about Green Line? Hold on. Then. Oh, we're not. Oh, okay. You got no. more. Uh, Integrated <laughs> Endoscopy had one of the largest as it's a big investor, Fosun, F O S U N. So Fosun has a medical device business called Chin Index, invested $6 million okay. in the company. In, in return, they have the distribution rights for China. Okay. Those are the kind of things that convince us. So we look at the technology, the management team, the potential uh, um, of the business, and, and the challenges. We look at risk um, you know, equally as we look at opportunity. On balance, we thought this was a great opportunity, and we are coming into this company at a very, we call it reasonable valuation, not say low or high. Very okay. reasonable valuation for each one of these companies. Okay. So we are, we are taking, we believe, uh, a small, if any, downside risk. You know, mostly we are working our tail off for the upside. Okay. Um, how do these companies fall in your lab? I mean, how do you come across these companies? And you've already talked a lot about how you disqualify how do you find these deals? So, uh, Saad, for first uh, maybe three years or so of our company's uh, history, yeah, outreach. We used to go to many, many events, um, incubators, accelerators. We will talk to a lot of outside intermediaries, right? Right. But over the course of last maybe year, year and a half, now things are coming to us. We are not actually going out. So we are not doing outreach deals. Right. So other than Green Lion, um, Cerebri AI, Integrate Endoscopy, another company that we are working with, Rootstock, all of them came to us through their board advisor or their outside, or we met them at some event. Okay, that makes sense. Um, we're getting close to sort of our time, but I want to look ahead a little bit. What does the next year look like for you guys? And what does the next two years look like you, uh, for you guys in terms of fund that you're raising? What are the companies that you have in your pipeline? So we are extremely focused on getting these uh, three SPV funding done between now and hopefully sooner. Yeah. Uh, and we continue to evaluate and talk to uh, new companies that come to our fold. We have actually gotten dozens of companies 
in what we call uh, edu ed tech, education technology. Okay. But why are we interested in them? Because they're using AI for teaching and learning. So that's a common theme. Another bucket that we have seen a lot is in clean tech or green tech. We are talking to a lot of uh, new energy, alternative energy production, distribution, use, that, that uh, bucket. So we have several partners on our team that have expertise in that space. So we have many companies in that portfolio. Medical devices, we have dozens of companies, including if we have money today, we will invest in them. They use light and other sources to kill different viruses or bacteria. Okay. Uh, or other light uh, technology. So we have dozens of these companies in our, in our, um, in our, our watch list folder. Okay. Um, what would you consider would be your your biggest accomplishments or achievements if you were to um, if you were to you know go down this pathway and, and, and do what you are setting out to do? I would not be surprised, Saad, that if we have one or more exits within a year and a half, two years. That's the timeline of what you're expecting from the previous portfolio companies. Yeah, it's not we are preparing or planning, but they they one of them had a term sheet to buy them last year. Okay. We another one company uh, we actually uh, are engaged in a conversation right now with that wants to acquire them. Okay. Right. Um, and then a third company we have presented them to their future possible uh, exit already. Right. So uh, what I'm saying is these are not hypothetical conversations for us. It's not uh, imagining or dreaming. We're saying there are discussions being had right now. Right. And we believe some of these could uh, re result into uh, possible access sooner than three to five years. One of the questions I always ask any manager that I work with is, especially now with this COVID situation is, you know, everyone has a plan and then suddenly, you know, this throws a wrench into that plan. Um, and, and I pose this question to both of you, actually, um, Al, for your experiential thought on this and Omer for your very, you know, fundamental analytical thought on this. How do you think, how do you think things are going to change, not just for yourself, and but also for the portfolio companies in their plans, in your plans going forward? when people go back to work, when people's mentalities have changed, um, how do you think that would affect your business? I think everything is uh, getting delayed. And so I think in the financial modeling and business planning, you know, you have to contemplate what if this doesn't happen? Right. So some of our companies expected, wanted, or hoped for funding last year. Right. Didn't happen. Actually, several of the companies that we're working with, for one or other reason, right? That kind of situation. So, working in a very pragmatic fashion to bridge those, you know, and come up with the creative ways to do that. So, we have to prepare ourselves for those eventualities. What if, despite all the effort that we're putting in, certain things don't happen on time? Can companies sustain themselves? You know, continue with their business. You know, uh, so this is what the CEOs are thinking as well. Right? So that's that's the that's the principal 
risk we're thinking of. The principal uh, challenge that we are thinking of, right, Omer? Absolutely, Al. And uh, from uh, from my perspective, uh, Saad, you know, there's three things that, that I think are important to talk about in context of those three things, right? One thing here is going forward, expectations management is, is a very important part of, of being a good GP, both from an investor and from a portfolio company perspective. I think just navigating the new normal, being the smarter peer in the grouping with our ears and eyes, you know, eyes out there with investors in the pulse of what's going on, uh, both in the corporate world as well as the LP world, and really being able to navigate and provide those insights to, to both parties that are engaged with us. I think that's really important value add and skill to have up front. Uh, when you're going through this, um, this kind of turbulent time. The second thing here that's more, a little bit more internal and to your point, to our fundamental kind of the, uh, you know, um, analysis and aspect of it is intellectual honesty. Uh, we all believe in these companies, but, you know, everybody has to kind of keep a very, very, you know, open-minded approach to kind of internalizing all the developments that are going on globally and really just being honest with ourselves and being, you know, having the tough conversations as soon as we need to. Uh, and Al can point to some scenarios where we've advised our portfolio companies to do some tough things, you know, proactively given where we are in the world. And the last thing I would say here is uh, where we're lucky and fortunate, uh, and again, not to uh, seize upon others' misfortune, this is not really what it is when people are worried about their lives in this tough time, uh, but we are fortunately investors in secular, regardless of what happens in the, in the world, because the world was going digital uh, and kind of a lot of the, the, the themes that we play really focus on that. But I, if anything, uh, the post-COVID world uh, will actually provide us significant tailwinds uh, in prosecuting these strategies, because I think there'll be additional investor interest in what we're doing. Like Cerebri is all digital, right? The clients are all over the world. Uh, they don't, uh, they can work out of anywhere, right? Um, Integrate endoscopy, a team, core team of five people. They're in th maybe three different continents, at least two different continents, right? Yeah. And, and mostly distribution. Manufacturing of the device will be done in Thailand as a U.S. company based in Thailand, right? It's a multi-billion dollar U.S. listed group that does OEM manufacturing in Thailand. Right. right, and distribution can be happen, and each one of these companies, by the way, could also be clients of Rootstock, which is our fourth, you know, portfolio company that we're talking about. Right. Right. So those are the connectivity that we're making. And one thing I would say, at a very personal level, uh, perhaps, is we become part of them. We become part of their team. This not by by virtue of saying it, but the way we take it very seriously, our responsibility toward them. And, and they treat us as such as well. Uh, and we're working with them through very difficult uh, situations that they face. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. And, and Omer, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. Because you're focused in the more technology space, yeah, that is the direction that everything was headed and is still headed even more so. So I agree with you. Um, you'd be surprised how many times I've heard that from a lot of managers who are in this space say, look, well, don't want to be insensitive, but this is definitely coming you know, in some sort of an advantage. And I think that there's nothing wrong in saying that. I think to be able to adapt to the environment that you're currently in and be able to take advantage of you nuances is definitely a, a positive from a perspective of a portfolio company, but also from the perspective of an investor. 
Um, if if we were to wrap this up, why don't I why don't I give you guys the floor for maybe a minute or two minutes? Just talk to me about what it is that you're currently working on. Um, tell us every, anything you want to about how you would like investors or other partners to perceive you. What would be the best way for you to describe yourself in in two or three sentences? Amir, do you want to first? Sure. So I'll I'll kick off here, and I think one of the points that that I think Saad is worth mentioning, and Al, please uh, feel free to fill in uh, and add uh, add additional color here, is uh, really uh, the the way our strategy straddles, uh, you know, earlier stage uh, venture, the way or venture or VCF people think of it, uh, when they think of series rounds, A, B, C, or D, or what have you, certain, you know, thoughts come into a, a potential LP's head, versus also how people think of growth equity as being more traditional, large ticket uh, buyout strategies. What we do is we're taking the combination of the positives of both sides and uh, overlaying them together. So we've actually written uh, on this topic previously as well, leveraging the extensive amount of data that came out of the 08 crisis and how growth equity-centric strategies performed much better in area in times of volatility uh, as and providing similar upside returns as, as traditional earlier stage venture and providing more of the loss ratios and uh, you know that are more akin to traditional large ticket private equity more attention to drive home, and that's not a, a hope or a wish. That is actually what happened in one of the most major recessions that we went through in the technological era, which was 2008. So leveraging that data and having that data set behind us is also, uh, you know, a compelling factor in us having conviction in how we're prosecuting our strategy right now. That's very interesting. I haven't I haven't been told that before, but I can certainly see the value. We can share the our uh, white paper on growth equity and how it performed during the uh, 08 uh, financial uh, crisis. We're actually gonna be sending that out to uh, all of our uh, target investors in the coming weeks. Um, I will add maybe slightly uh, different uh, points uh, to Amir's, uh, all of those valid. So think of us, we are a seasoned team of global operators, okay. managers and investors. And we have a very somber, pragmatic, practical approach to investment. We put our own money in every one of these companies, perhaps even first before anybody else does. Uh, and and our, we are deeply relationship oriented. So to meeting the right portfolio companies and developing a, a proper relationship with them so that we can influence them, help them along the way. Right. Um, and then choosing to invest in growth stage companies is our focus is on uh, upside and less on uh, you know downside. Basically, saying is we are avoiding a lot of downside risk already. Where we have some downright risk, downside risk, we will be managing that effectively given our operator management consulting background. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, thank you for for actually allowing me and and anybody you know watching this or listening to this to have a little peek into how you guys are operating and, and what are the factors that motivate you and drive you that certainly helps people make decisions i would say about whether they want to invest with you whether they want to pitch you um i think i think there's a lot of things that you said here that i agree with and a lot of things i didn't know actually uh, i stay quiet because it's, it's very interesting to me that that there was even a growth stage. I just want to ask one last question before, and I just thought of it right now. Um, 
you you guys use the term growth engineering a lot, right? Now, based on this conversation, I kind of have an idea, or anybody can have an idea as to what you mean by that. But do you have your own definition or do you have your own own sort of description of what that means? I think growth engineering was a, a, a kind of a label that we came up with to personalize, personify our team and approach. Many of us are engineers and scientists and our growth equity investment strategy, once you see some of our memos, you will see that by NASA's you know, shuttle readiness uh, uh, framework. So NASA had a framework which says you have to meet the following conditions before they will. Uh, we're not saying we're using that. We were inspired by that, right? Okay. And 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 that that's where the engineering and uh, uh, growth came together for us. So we are saying growth can be engineered. So and does it have to have a negative connotation to it, as some people yeah. might expect? Yeah, it's a growth can be engineered through disciplined scientific, technical, and management science, right, approach. So management is to us is a science, right, as well, uh, versus an art. But we, we're talking, focusing on engineering. So if we have disciplined process, disciplined, uh, you know, uh, techniques, right, they can, so growth can be engineered or growth can be improved through these kind of principles. So that's hence, well, I can't think of any actually better way to, to end that call. Um, I think it's a very, very awesome way of putting it. Um, thanks again for, for taking the time to do it. Todd, we are uh, very excited um, to be working with you. We look forward to, uh, to the next steps with you and your team. Um, we are a big believer uh, in uh, digital uh, methods of doing business. Uh, particularly given uh, the uh, era that we are living in. Um, yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Um, again, both of you, thank you for taking the time to actually do this. So, uh, thank you. Please be well. It was a pleasure. Thank you, sir.